Hello and welcome back to Sport and Lots after a couple of weeks away enjoying the summer. Our scheduling is uncertain as Qatar's World Cup and still some time off for me, Rob Harris. But still, as ever here, are Martin Ziegler from the Times and Tarek Panja from the New York Times. Just as we've been preparing for 100 days until the World Cup and then the date moved. Well, you know, they've not had enough time to prepare, have they? It's sort of understandable. It's only been 12 years. It's sort of need a bit, need a few more, a bit longer to prepare with these important decisions. Well, it's remarkable, though, isn't it? I, funny enough, I was talking to someone from from the Qatari um, organising committee just to kind of re-engage with the story. I, I'd taken my eye off the World Cup with all the other bits going on, <laughs> and. Um, then call call them the next day. So you didn't mention this absolutely enormous thing like the start being moved. And he said he didn't have a clue. Talked to some other people. They didn't have a clue. And I think that speaks to how a lot of this World Cup planning has gone. This is a World Cup which is in um, a Gulf autocratic monarchy. And in some places it's been um, done by diktat. So... Somewhere high up, someone quite correctly, I think, as well, decided it would make sense for Qatar to be playing the opening match of their World Cup with the opening ceremony and not the third game. We were all scratching our heads, weren't we, Martin, Rob, at the time when um, when it happened? Like, hang on a minute, what's going on? They moved Qatar so they can be at prime time on Monday. Yeah, that was a weird one, wasn't it? Um, I think there was at the time there was a, like a suggestion that the they wanted to have a big fireworks display to Qatar's first match, and so therefore it had to be in the evening. But due to sort of the, the restricted size of the tournament, the, the the first match had to be during the day. Um, but it never really made sense. I mean, I, people I've been speaking to, I don't think it's so much of a conspiracy theory as a sort of fairly obvious theory that actually this was always sort of in the back of the back of FIFA's mind. But they didn't. They... Well, but how much you say it was always in the back of their mind? But how how much was it in their back of their mind when they've spent millions of of pounds, euros, dollars, whatever you want to call, wrapping cities, buses all over the world since the start of this month with the World Cup dates that are now wrong? So you can't be in the back of your mind and then and then do it so late. Why is it so cacophonous? Well, I, I suppose the, the, you know the, what they, FIFA wanted, didn't want to do was to provoke a massive row with the European leagues, European clubs, um, to say, you know, before the, you know, say, say at the time of the draw, for example, in, in April, it would have been a sort of overshadowed that completely if they said they wanted to move it forward by a day. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's why I thought... I, Exactly. Well, I, that's why I think they thought, well, you know, we'd like to do that, but we'll hang fire and we'll sort of secretly sort of prepare for it. I don't know if this is true, but I mean, it would make sense in many ways. I think, oh, well, it's only Ecuador. It's not a Europe. Yeah, I think I think you, you know, some of that is, is feels like very, very accurate in the sense um, it is Ecuador, but it was Ecuador on the day of the draw as well. Let's not forget. It's not like, oh, they're suddenly playing Ecuador. The the issue as well, this this World Cup, um, Ziggs, do you remember it's... Um, because they've had to move it to November and December in order for no one to die in the blazing heat of the summer in Qatar, the 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 the, the European season actually now ends six days before the first game. Um, it was going to be seven days, the player release. Normally, it's about three weeks before a World Cup at least. 
And that, that now means if it was, say, I don't know, Holland and not Ecuador, Holland are in the same group, even maybe Senegal with all the players playing in the, in the great European leagues and great European teams, would, would, they, would they have stood for having just six days preparations for, for a World Cup? Don't forget, Qatar's team is taking five months off or something to, to, to prepare for this. It's probably easier to shove um, someone like Ecuador around. And I wonder what else is kind of the inducement here, because in many ways, this is the World Cup of inducements. European country that they're playing, so um, that's not good. that's not going to be an issue. And then, um, and then we'll we'll sort of like spring it. <laughs> News of this first came out in South America, so I think it's sort of fairly clear that they they had to get their ducks in a row with Ecuador um, to agree to this first, and and Commonwealth, the South American Federation. Um, so because other, yes, you're right. If it had been a Holland or England or whoever, or, I think that would have been a, a, a much greater problem for the organizers. Um, I mean, it, as, as we said, you know, it, it sort of, it, it never made much sense, but I think it harks back to the fact that, you know, they, when they moved the world cup and then in 2015 and they agreed the new dates, um, and they're going to, it's going to be 28 days instead of 32, which we'd seen in, in Brazil and in in Russia in 2014, 2018. It's always going to be really, really tight, wasn't it? Squeezing it into those days. So, um, I mean, I'm interested in see actually, you know, does that have any effect on TV rights deals? Probably not, because it just gives broadcasters an extra day that they weren't expecting. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you. you... The actual game and where it is seven o'clock on a Sunday, prime time in Qatar, all of that makes sense, of course, you know. But it's it's doing it so late in the day, right? Um, I mean, for broadcasters, well, they plan for months. Even you know, the World Cup we've known for years when it was supposed to start and it's now suddenly moved. So there's a lot of scheduling and, and logistics involved in that. Um, speaking of these changes, one thing when I was reporting this story um, and <laughs> thinking about sudden changes, I heard a great anecdote which just talks maybe to the annoyance of people maybe trying to organise the World Cup, is in, in 2019, um, all of these Qatari stadiums are, are essentially newly built for the tournament and they get inaugurated one after the other. And, and the famous stadium dubbed, you know, the Vagina Stadium because of that roof design by Zara, the late Zara Hadid. Um, they were planning a huge inauguration uh, plan for this. So... Um, Marketing documents, um, big press releases, all the all the bells and whistles as you would expect. Um, only to find that the Emir, while on his way to inaugurate the stadium, which was due to be called the Al Wakra Stadium, tweeted that it would be called the Al Janoub Stadium instead. So all of that literature, all the marketing plans, have just completely gone to dust. Ten minutes, twenty minutes before the stadium was due to be opened, and you know, I don't know. Um, if you can organise tournaments in such a kind of last-minute, fief-driven way. I remember uh, Jerome Valka, what did he say, Ziggs? He'd prefer dictatorships or something? He said it was a lot easier to organise a World Cup in a dictatorship, yeah. And I, I think um, this shows maybe not. It depends on the, you know, um, not calling the Emir a dictator, but <laughs> the person the person who is dictating uh, the decisions. Um, but... There's loads of things about the World Cup we don't know, do we? Um, three months to go. We've been talking about lots of lots of little bits. 
Um, the security plan, for example, all of it's like rumours and this might be like this, but no one told us exactly what it's going to be like. All these troops coming in from wherever. Um, the the alcohol plan, exactly. That hasn't been completely made clear to people. How, what experience fans will have in Qatar, they still don't know. It's weird, isn't it? We're just such a short time to go and such a long time to build up for it. Yeah, there's definitely... It reminds me slightly of the sort of Beijing Olympic build-up, where it's sort of like it's almost as though um, people are sort of a, a bit involved in the organising committees. They're a bit sort of scared to publicise any decisions because they it, they it all it all needs to come from uh, from above and to be signed off at the very top, and they don't want to take responsibility for for, for decision making. Um, and it, it does it's perhaps a bit like that, as you say. There's, you know, we you know we know broadly what's going to happen with the alcohol policy, but um, that it, it's likely to be available in the fan parks. But there's been nothing. There's been nothing like official, is there? There's no sort no. of. There's no, no sort of. So, so when we're writing it, we're kind of it's 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 informed writing because we obviously talk to people, but that that's not how you communicate with supporters. It's not through briefing media, et cetera, off the record or things like that, where something kind of very practical needs to be made clear to, to visitors. Who, For some, it, it's going to be um, the most expensive, for many, the most expensive trip they will ever have gone on in their lives. You know, it, this is such a big deal for a lot of visitors. The fact that they're kind of kept in the dark about a lot of what they're likely to face and, and challenges that they may have to overcome seems to me um, a really odd way of welcoming the world. Just to go back to the actual decision again to, to just move it forward a day. I know people will think it's, you know, well, it doesn't really matter. But it, you know, I think it, look at in all the history of the sort of World Cups, um, Olympic Games, European Championships, I mean, it, they're sort of moving it forward and, a day or changing the dates at very short notice. I mean, I think the only time it's probably happened was was um, because was the pandemic yeah. um, when they moved Tokyo um, Olympics and the and the Euros. But um, just to do it for on a sort of whim, <laughs> it's like remarkable. We, we saw the letter um, that was sent by Fatma Samora, the Secretary General of FIFA, to the. The FIFA bureau, the, the sort of cabinet who makes the decisions, sort of urging them to, to sign this off, um, which of course they did. But um, and it, I mean, it did actually sort of talk about the fact that they, you know they'd looked at the sort of the risk factor, um, the, the impact on fans and media rights, because they're, 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 I know there's not going to be a huge number of Ecuador fans going, but they're going to be some, and. They will probably have sort of planned their trips on the basis that they're going to be playing a day later. So not not, I did not ask... only them, not only them, Martin. There's another game that's been moved as well, hasn't there? As a result of that change, the Senegal Netherlands game uh, that was due to kick off at one p.m. local time on the Monday is now gone to the seven p.m. slot, the prime time one that Qatar Ecuador was going to have, and the repercussions of that. We've already seen. I got someone who's got tickets for the Senegal versus Holland game, and then the last game of the night, which is uh, the United States versus Wales. 
can't now go to both of those matches because the the second game will now start an hour after the first finishes. So he just doesn't think he's going to make it. So you're right. Oh, okay. So he's going to trying to do two matches in a day. A lot of people will be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Four four games in a day. Yeah. uh, Group stage. Yeah. So I did ask FIFA. You know what. And the and Qatar organisers, you know, what would they what would they would do about that in terms of compensation? I mean, they said they would consider consider it, but there won't be a sort of blanket scheme. It will be up to sort of individual applications. So um, it's uh, I think there's going to be some people are going to be very frustrated. Absolutely, and they're already frustrated as well when it comes to booking accommodation. It's it's um, fans have spoken about how expensive lodgings are three five times more than the same type of accommodation is available for sort of now and before the world cup um how they have to pay for their tickets up front before they're even allowed to book hotels um and and how difficult that portal is to 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 see where you're going to stay it's got stock imagery and not not actual pictures of where people are, are spending hundreds of dollars a night staying so now you're going to ask the same people to try and fix dates, move dates around, move flights around. I just think if they haven't been able to do the the basics, you know, good luck to those supporters trying to move things around now. Probably not the uh, the last time we're going to be talking about some issues around the World Cup, I reckon, in the next few months, guys. But um, And probably not the last time we're going to be talking uh, about Barcelona because the sort of farce around their finances and their transfer policy and the the whole thing is just um incredible now um and i know you you did an interview with, with juan laporta didn't you Tarek? yes yeah i spoke to juan laporta um about a couple of weeks ago now uh where the situation ironically it's been two weeks since and they look like they're in even more of a muddle than they were then um, Barcelona, let's just think about their finances for a second. Laporta came in because of a vote of no confidence in a board that essentially had bankrupted the football club. He came in to say they were technically dead. <laughs> um, debts over a billion euros, uh, negative equity of 600 million euros, a, a wage bill that was 40% higher than the next highest wage bill, um, enormous financial problems. So he said, like, how is this guy going to fix it? When you, when, you're, when you have situations like that, financial trouble, you normally try and cut your cloth and, you know, a couple of years of savings and penury. But, Ziggs, Laporta appears to have gone the other way, hasn't he? Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose the only way he can probably survive politically is by sort of trying to buy his way out of trouble. Um, but the, the sort of money raising efforts um, have sort of they, they've sort of, they, La Liga haven't signed them off, have they? For example, um, no, 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 they haven't. And those money raising efforts are in order to register more players than any of the other top teams in Europe have signed. You know, I just find it amazing given given the state of their finances. It's not that they're buying one or two players. They, they've, they've committed at least 150 million euros to, to three players. Robert Lewandowski, who's going to be 34. So they're not going to be selling him at any point soon for, for the same money. Uh, Rafinha from, from Leeds, who 
was much sought after, but they 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 um, they got him ahead of Chelsea, I believe. And um, Jules Kunde, another one, a big defender that a lot of clubs wanted, and, and Barcelona got him, plus a bunch of um, uh, free transfers that aren't really free. It's it's incredible. In order to do that, see, yeah, they've been selling club assets. Um, 25% of 25 years worth of La Liga domestic rights to an American investment fund, um, which is going to cost them 41 million euros in costs to service for the next 25. So that, that, that's money gone for 25 years. And then they've started selling off this thing called Barcelona Studios, which I still don't know exactly what that is. But Socios, that cryptocurrency that we've talked about, uh, that crypto company that we've talked about on this pod before, the one that doesn't make sense to us either, has spent $100 million on on, um, a 25% stake on this Barca Studios. And then they've sold another 25% of those studios. I mean, to to me, it looks like sort of taking a big gamble on the future. If If you borrow against basically getting getting a, 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 an advance on a quarter of all your earnings over the next 25 years i mean that, that's a long time to try and claw that back um it just reminds me slightly of the sort of craziness around um leeds united and in the days when peter ridsdale was the chairman the, what leeds did at the time i mean you know with, with going back 20 years they were one of the top teams in the Premier League at the time. Um, they'd been in the Champions League. And then they um, basically, did, similar to Barcelona, borrowed from a, a finance company um, on the basis of, of future income um, from, the, from the Premier League. Uh, and also on the expectation they were going to get into the Champions League again. And they just missed out, missed out by one place, and it all sort of crumbled. They didn't, they just couldn't, they couldn't service the debt. They had to sell their best players. Um, they're, they're sort of the, the wages they've been paying was crazy, and actually, it, they went into a downward spiral. Ended up going into administration. Um, it has, yeah, it has a it has a very similar um, impact to that, and I guess a bit of hubris too, where it, you get a sense that you know it's a too big to fail sort of entity. You know, Barcelona. Without Barcelona being being very good, being being um, kind of a rival to Real Madrid, that hurts this, you know, Spain Inc. etc. But really, some of this is mad. And also, you know, Laporta, he says, when I first came in, look, it's his second term, it's his second time as president. Sorry, he came in in two thousand and three, and Barcelona were were in a financial mess then. They they had revenues around um, I don't know around one hundred and twenty million euros. They had um, losses of 170 million and then debts of, um, I think, 150 million. But this is by a factor of 10 on all of those um, elements um, bigger. And 2003, he was able to draw on all those new income streams that Barcelona hadn't done. It didn't take advantage of its international reach. It didn't have this great marketing platform. It didn't kind. Of, it was not a mature business. Barcelona in 2022 is a mature business. They're really tapped out on quite a lot of this stuff. Do you think, well, if you're going to use that same method, where's all this new revenue going to come from? And they talk about things like NFTs and metaverses and God knows what. You talk to anyone, that's just, it feels all pie in the sky. No one knows if any of that's going to work, do they? And and I guess if it all fails, because it's a member-owned club, worst thing that happens to this guy is he drives the club into the ground, but it's not his money. 
he's just in electric. He just go. He just waltzes off into the sunset and said, you know, I love Barca. I, I tried it for for the fans, and, and we have to win. It just seems something something's broken. Six. What, what about those La Liga rules? What what does that mean? Well, they 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 have to register their players. The La Liga rules, and, and they can't play until they're registered. So um, that's a really big problem. Problem. It's not. Uh, they're about to kick off the new season, aren't they? Uh, and if, if they haven't got their star names, that's a Lewandowski, Rafinha. That's a massive problem. Yeah, it's um, it's um, they, the, the Liga rules say basically they've got to um, shed seven or raise seven hundred odd million euros and and shed their their wage bill um, in order to meet this. So that's why they were selling these assets in order to do this FFP. Mm. Financial fair play in La Liga, but Ziggs, they've also in, in order to get this, in order to get their wage bill down, they're also it appears to be bullying one of their best players, Frankie De Jong. Yeah, this is um, something. That, I mean, it's come to even I think FIFA, Pro, the International Players Union, are keeping a close eye on this because he agreed to um, postpone the payment of his enormous wages. Um, because of the financial problems that they got into during the pandemic. And now they're, they're sort of trying to force him to sort of write off a, a big, big chunk of that. I think with something like um, £17 million. Pounds. Uh, and just as, you know, and they're sort of putting him in an invidious position where, you know, they're saying, you know, take a wage cut. Or you know, if we sell you, you got to write off the salary. You got to write off all this money that we um, that, that we owe you. Um, now, I mean, FIFA speaking to insiders there, they, they say you know this is a sort of you know, they deal with this sort of thing quite often with clubs all the time. But I don't think it's ever been on this sort of scale before, and it's a, it's a, it's a huge one. I mean, part of you know the fan on the ground, I think, well, you know he. <laughs> He's getting four hundred thousand pounds a week. What? Why? What? What? How did that? That sort of was that deal ever agreed? It just seems absolutely crazy money at the time. Um, but it, you know, he signed on the dotted line, and if that's what they agreed to pay, that's what they agreed to pay, and they should they should honour that. Yeah, just, I, mean, um, I asked sorry. a porter about De Jong, and again, he's kind of felt like felt like he was speaking from both sides of his mouth. I mean, my one thing with him is extremely charismatic very charming and always trying to please everyone. So so I said, well, you know, what's the deal with this with this with Frankie De Jong? Um, it was two weeks ago, but nothing has changed because he keeps saying the same thing. I love Frankie De Jong. Frankie De Jong wants to stay. Um, so hang on a minute. I said, so he wants to stay. You love him. And he then said, Frankie De Jong is not for sale. So those three elements would suggest that there's no issue. And he said, Absolutely, I love this guy. And I, um, but then I said, well, well, no problem then. But then he needs to then cut his wages. So you're trying to say all things to all people, and that's the public stuff. And then what I found particularly nasty, there was a story that was an unsourced story that was being published that Barcelona are alleging criminality unspecified in the contract that Frankie de Jong signed with the previous board, not just Frankie de Jong, these extensions that you mentioned because of COVID, um, Lenglet, other players, unspecified levels of criminality, and it gets published. Now, 
Barcelona and Laporta in particular is very, very good at getting an army of supporters to back what he's doing. So if you're on the other side of that, he's now just potentially labelled Frankie de Jong as a criminal or someone who's been alleged to be involved with some sort of criminal conspiracy to sign this contract. How, and that's now in the public domain. And I find that particularly nasty because it, that no one's gone on the record to say it. They've not said that. And also, they did, a, they did an audit of the books a year ago and it never came up. Now, suddenly they want this guy to go. And this comes up. I spoke to a former board member and he said, if they think we've done something criminal, take us to court. I said, well, have they written to you? Is there any, is there any paperwork to suggest that? He goes, well, I haven't seen anything yet. But meanwhile, that world has gone around the news around a million times. And it's, it's kind of vilifies the player even a little bit more, doesn't it, as it, it ratchets up the pressure. Yeah, it's definitely putting putting on a pressure point. I wonder if Barcelona, if Laporte and Barcelona, they just, I mean, they're just like so desperate. They they're just hoping that maybe you know they can win this Super League legal case, and then that will open up the sort of floodgates for more money to come in. Um, well, he's still very committed to it, Laporta. He's still extremely committed to it. He said they still have a plan. No more um, closed league. It will be an open competition. They just want it to be taken away from UEFA. And probably they just want it to pay them more money than everyone else. Well, that, and that was the original plan, wasn't it? That Barcelona yeah. and Real Madrid would get extra money more than anybody else. Um, which, talking of the Super League, it was um, 10 years ago this week that the Glazers um, put shares uh, onto the New York Stock Exchange, 10, sold 10% of the club on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and there have been sort of various sort of spikes and drops. And, you know, when the Super League came up, that, that, there was a, a spike in the share price at the time and then a drop after it collapsed. But the, the last few months have seen it drop down to its sort of lowest levels. So exactly 10 years on, it was something like 20% lower than when it, when it, uh, when it launched, like £260 million wiped off the value of the club effectively um which isn't great for uh you know the arguably the biggest club brand in the world it's just strange that struggling to get that sort of success in the, in terms of the share price well there's been a lot of obviously it's a bit of a clown show on on the field and in the transfer market we don't need to kind of elaborate on that. Anyone who follows football can see what Manchester United has kind of become a bit of a, a laughing stock in the way it's run. But then something else caught my eye uh, was that team viewer, that German company um, that signed its sponsorship deal with them um, last year or the year before has already announced it will not renew the, the Manchester United shirt deal. Of course, Manchester United is extremely popular around the world and... and, and um, and, and will continue to be so. But there are kind of headwinds there, aren't there? There's that. There's um, a need for massive capital expenditure on infrastructure. Old Trafford is, is faded. A lot of money um, has been spent very badly on making the team worse, it seems, year by year. Um, it, it's, it's a rebuild. And, and, and as you say, this is at a time in the last 10 years, revenues probably have, have, have gone up. Um, in, in that time. Um, but speaking of Super League, Martin, Manchester United um, probably don't need that because they're in the Premier League. The Premier League, we've talked about this, is so much more successful from um, a commercial perspective than any of those other big four leagues 
outside of that, and it's in a league of its own. I, I, I noticed that Adriano Galliani, former director of AC Milan, now with Silvio Berlusconi at Monza, who've been promoted to Serie A, has talked about a European league, a Super League, if you want, without the English teams, because the English teams are basically eating everyone's lunch. He said Nottingham Forest, for example, just promoted to the Premier League, will be getting around 140 million euros, while his team, Monza, promoted to um, Serie A, essentially in a very similar fashion from a second tier to the first tier, uh, will be getting about 23 million revenues, uh, million euros in revenues. And that, that, that gulf is from the top to the bottom in many ways. Do you, do you think there's any legs to, a, to um, a European league without English teams that, so they can maybe rival them? Or is that another pie-in-the-sky idea that's bonkers? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want it to be too Anglo-centric, but, I mean, who would watch it if it hadn't got Manchester United or Liverpool particularly, um, or the other you know, top English teams? I mean, not, and I mean, even down to the sort of people who might break into it, like Leicester City, you know, who, who've played in the Champions League recently. Um but without that, the sort of glamour of the English teams, who have, by and large, apart from PSG now, um, m- most of the world's best players, um, it, it's like a sort of, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like, I, I just don't see the international interest in that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but there's, there is this issue of... Um... I guess from a football inequality, I suppose, when 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 um, when all the resources in just one place, and it's not the Premier League's fault. Of course, it's marking its thirty years as well this season, isn't it? It's been a it's been a commercial um, success, and it's been a um, a success when it comes to fan interest and entertainment as well. It's been it's been very successful, mm. but but for those other teams, especially when it comes to European competition, eventually, as you've said, if all the best players are in England. Essentially, you, 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 they should be winning the Champions League and the Europa League every year as well. And, and what does that do to those competitions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not that long ago. You know, it's in the nineties. Italy were the were the sort of biggest league, weren't they? In terms of you know, they had all the top players, and they you know they paid the most money. Um, and then it went to Spain um, in the, the first decade of, of, of this century. Well, just a couple of teams in Spain, Martin. I yeah, think a couple Spain, of teams. was really a, a rival. And, and 30 no. years is a long time. To, it to is. Be and it, it, in the last 10 years, it's it's just the, the, the balance has been shifting sort of fairly, yeah, on, on a sort of steady rate. And the, 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 the sort of state ownership of Manchester City and Newcastle and the sort of Abramovich era at Chelsea, I think, is going to... That's all sort of added to the added to it on top of the commercial success of the Premier League internationally. I mean, just to go back to you know whether a, a, a European league without the English teams would work. I mean, if you look at the international rights, for example, how much the Bundesliga gets for its international rights, it's compared to the Premier League is absolutely tiny. It really, really is. I, I would um, guess that the Premier League gets more in a market like Singapore. 
than the Bundesliga gets from all of its markets put together. And that's what we're talking about here. That's probably, that is probably about right. Yeah. So how do you balance it? Do you think one of the things I thought about was, look, we keep talking about money and financial fair play and things like that. Wouldn't, wouldn't UEFA or, or whoever, I think it's UEFA's job, really. You know, Seferin and UEFA recently said that they're not, they're not looking at competitive balance. But isn't that part of their, their job? And why, don't, why do you need to do it with, with only financial tools? For example, could you not do, you know, limits on the number of players each team could sign each season, squad sizes, transfers between Champions League teams, all these things that are non-financial but have a bearing on, on who plays? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it depends really. I, I'm, I'm a slightly trying, I, I sort of tend to think that there's, don't impose too many restrictions if you impose too many restrictions, it, it sort of can have unforeseen consequences. Um, so generally, I, I personally, I, I'm not in favour of too many of those sorts of things. In terms of like redressing the sort of balance, I mean, look, at, if you UEFA have already been forced to do it by um, the, the ECA, especially when Agnelli was there, because the English clubs used to get a lot more from the market share. Um, than they do now, um, because that that was sort of forced through. Basically, the fact that that they had to sort instead of getting um, the, the percentage of the of the English TV rights from the Champions League that the English clubs would get was basically cut significantly three years ago um, in, in the favour of of the of the other leagues, which didn't have such big deals. Um, so the, the, there's already a sort of been a pressure on that, but that. You know, when you look at the international rights of the Premier League alone, that's what the big difference is here. And that's, yeah. you know, it's grown, it's grown to the fact the point now with the international rights for the Premier League for the first time this season, starting this season, is more than domestic rights. And I think that's, I don't think that's um, never happened with the Premier League. And I'm sure it's never happened with any other league either. Nowhere close with any other league. And that, I guess that's that's the point. And that, that's that's the bit that I reckon keep keep fueling the Premier League. And don't forget the domestic rights are still more than the other domestic rights anyway. Let's also remember that. So essentially what we're looking at is uh, a league of its own. And and I don't see anything changing that, I guess. So it'd be interesting if we were to do this podcast in, 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 in 10 years talking about this issue, I'd love to see the state of teams in Bundesliga or La Liga and, and Serie A, not even thinking about the French League. Um, and, and the interest levels there are in those competitions. I, I just think um, something needs or doesn't need to be done. If you want to keep the status quo and that kind of steady decline, erosion of those competitions, fair enough. But I don't know what they can do unless they do something pretty seismic. Um, and maybe you can't force that. If the international viewers only want to watch English football on a, on a weekend, then, then I guess the race is, is run. Martin, this was more breakaway news this week, wasn't it? It was the um, another one of our favourites, Saudi Arabia's, I guess, hostile takeover of 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 golf. Yeah. So there's um, as we've talked about before, this this is the sort of legal challenges now from the um, the PGA in America. Um, there's already been one um, from the European Tour, which that that. 
they, they haven't been successful with so far, but it's still it's still going through. Um, and it's a it's a similar thing. There's a and there's a sort of antitrust issue in the USA, um, an anti competition issue, which I mean some lawyers have seen think that the PGA is in a very difficult space legally, and that they may have to sort of somehow give way to this this Saudi income. Um, one thing I'm still not sure about. I mean, we know you know the whole issue around. The Saudis pursuing sport for sort of soft power and influence and prestige. Is it why they're prepared to disrupt the um, the status quo with the European leagues and the PGA to such an extent? Um, I'm still not in. I'm still quite interested why they are prepared to do that. Well, you know, it could be something as simple as uh, Yasser Rumayan really, really, really loves golf. It was. Do you remember that advert um, for Remington Razors back in the day? Uh, Victor Kayam, I like the company so. I like the product so much. I bought the company. But um, the the court case this week was in was in California, and this was three players that signed up to live golf. At, you know, paid a few million dollars to join Taylor Gooch, Matt Jones, and Hudson Swarford. They were they were requesting an emergency injunction to play in the PGA Tours FedEx Cup playoffs. The judge pretty much um, sided with the PGA Tour and said, "Look, this isn't going to cause you irreparable harm. And why have you brought this case to me so late in the day? Given that you've known for months that this could happen, it's almost like they created an emergency in order for the judge." to rule they could play. Um, so, so far, that's the first skirmish in the, in the American courts that's been kind of kicked out. But the thing I found really, really interesting was the PGA Tours language about live golf. They were not holding back. And they said in the, in the court filing the day before the hearing, they condemned uh, live golf as a strategy by the Saudi government to use sports in an effort to improve its reputation for human rights abuses and other atrocities. Um, and they also said antitrust laws do not allow plaintiffs, in this case the golfers, to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, these guys have been paid millions, more than often they're going to win on uh, an entire career playing golf. Phil Mickelson, you know, got paid $200 million, said to be the highest amount. Um, but others got enormous amounts, more than they're ever likely to play um, in earning winnings. It's, it's as you say, Martin, What's what's the grand plan here? Is there a business strategy at all? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, also, the PGA I like it the fact they never they never use the phrase "live golf," do they? They just call it the Saudi the Saudi Golf Tour. They refuse to use that particular yeah. <laughs> language. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's um, so. Yeah, the, the, the in, so the the American court so far sort of backed the PGA, which is slightly different to what happened in the in the uh, the, the British High Court, where they sort of sided with the the, the players um, who, on the, at least temporarily, who who took the action to be allowed to play um, in the um, British tournaments as well as with on the Live Tour. Um, it's. I mean, I, I've been sort of speaking to a, a, a couple of people, sort of 
who sort of represent the Saudi government, um, they say, they they say, oh well, they you know the, the Saudi public investment funds see golf as a sort of undervalued sport and it's sort of a massive investment opportunity. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I think it's hard it's, to see. Yeah, well, so massive that they their time horizons seem to be like I don't know decades long to see if this will even um, break even because they're 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 looking to spend two billion in the next few years in in this in this um, event 14, 14 um, events per year with that big final the biggest purses. In, in any in any golf tournament history, four and a half million dollars for the winner each tournament, money for the last guaranteed money for the last place um, player in the field. It is a very odd strategy if they are looking to to turn this into into a business, isn't it? I mean, it's just pouring money into into something they like. And again, from from the tour's point of view, you can't go toe to toe with bottomless state funds. I think Barcelona have found that out. We're talking about football. The inflationary pressure of PSG and Man City and all these things. You, you try and you try and match firepower with a with an oil rich country, you, you're sunk. We, we, we've we've kind of we've kind of seen it. And the PGA Tour's business model. Why why are they doing all this? Why are they kicking these people out? Is it, it without the exclusivity? They don't have that pull for sponsors and television companies. So they 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 don't they won't be able to have um I guess a commercial operation that is um sound any longer. Um, and things you notice that all the players, whenever they're asked, they they really don't like talking about the money. They're talking about you know growing growing the game of golf and and, and things like this and bringing new spectators, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But something funny there was um um David Feherty, I think a commentator. Has just switched to live golf, and uh, someone interviewed him. I think it was in Sports Illustrated. I read this, and he said, "Well, what are you doing this for?" And he said, "For the money, of course. At least someone's being honest." <laughs> well, exactly. Um, I mean, it is it is sort of crazy amounts of money. Um, I mean, these golfers are really very, very most of them very, very highly paid. But you know, it's the sort of even even if you're a multimillionaire, you know it's it, it's the chance of a, a better yacht or you know buying an island. I've always had my I've always wanted to buy that island. Now I've got the chance to buy it and build a huge house and that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, it's um, yeah we will. Uh, this isn't this is isn't going to go away, isn't it? I think this is they're going to be legal battles over this. But I think the thing with golf is that it, they are it they're sort of international major public focus is around the majors the four majors and the Ryder cup um so that is the the weapon that the the pga particularly still has you know they, they yeah have, but but you know yeah. we talked about this in, in one of the recent editions of the pod so even then the the saudis are determined to mess with with the european tour to the point where they um they poached henrik stenson the captain of the european Ryder cup team and I think that there's no kind of sporting reason to have done that beyond messing with the Ryder Cup preparation. So it's clearly not going to end in like a friendly peace deal when when the behaviour and language on both sides is so bellicose. 
Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, that's a little, very much a sort of tactical thing. We're gonna, unless you come, unless you like let us join the party and um, you know be part of it and take a big chunk of your time and players away from us. You know, we're gonna disrupt you as much as we can. That seems to be the message from there. Other big sporting news this week, uh, Tarek. Serena Williams um, calling it a day after a stellar career. Yeah, for me, and again, I don't know who measures and how one measures these things, but for me, the best female athlete of all time in any sport. I mean, just incredible. The journey, her journey to get into professional tennis with her sister Venus in, in the first place. And then just the years of dominance I just think that will be unrivaled. What what a what a what a kind of icon, what an example to to um other other girls from from her background as well. I mean there've been some bumps in the road of course. There were we 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 talked about this there were some um unsavory moments with um officials along the way, but she's also copped a lot of stick as well. I remember um there was um a racist incident at Indian Wells tournament in California that led to Serena not and her sister not competing in those events. But but such a such a great champion. Of course, she's she's getting on, but she is still younger than some of the male players. And it made me think. Of course, she's had the she's already had one child, and if if that that that's that's the challenge female athletes face as well. It's um kind of balancing motherhood with a career in professional sports. And I think that's, that's a challenge that a lot of the, the top male athletes never or would hardly never face being, being, you know, rearing, rearing the children. Yeah. Well, she uh, made it clear that actually if she had been a man, she would continue to compete. Um, and she, she's been someone who's been sort of a, a, a voice in terms of the, the racism and prejudice she's faced around her career. And also the sort of, um, sexist attitudes she's faced, and I mean, for example, there was once when she, you know, she was given a, a really, really tough punishment for smashing her racket, whereas the uh, uh, at the at the uh, the, the, the ma- a male player did the same thing was virtually let off. So it was seen to be sort of you know unfemale or whatever, and that's why she um, she was given this tougher punishment. But she also said that she, you know, she's been sort of basically sort of underpaid um, and undervalued throughout her career, basically because she's black. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, and, I think that that's a really good point. Um, and from, from, you mean from the commercial partners as well? I, I yeah. From, that, yeah from like sponsorship and all that sort of thing. And yeah. Um, where, where it's sort of, you know, I suppose that had uh, people like Anna Kornikova were sort of, um, Maria um, Sharapova, that, 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 I think, comes to mind. She was, she, was, she, was a, she was a rival for a very, very brief yeah. amount of time and then ended up earning this huge amount of money for her off-court endeavours, um, which fair play to her. Good luck to, to Maria Sharapova. But for, for um, all of Serena Williams's dominance, those off-court earnings should have been a huge amount more if, if, if I guess, there was a level playing field to these things. Yeah, but it's um yeah she's been a you know she's definitely been a sort of you know part of the international sporting landscape for the last 
two decades. And um, yeah, well, good luck to her. A couple of minor issues of the week, I think, quite some split opinions. One is the the BBC ending the uh, reading out of the classified football results on the radio at Saturday five o'clock after seventy years. Um, people in in England and Britain will know the uh, the familiar theme tune to Sports Report, followed by the classified results. No longer. They've, that's been scrapped but due to the sort of um, influence of internet, smartphones, all that. Um, what do you think, Tarek? I, I think it's a shame, but you, 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 you all for the change. I mean, not, not all for the change, but I, I'm just not crying in my tea like uh, a lot of people seem to be at the moment. Because um, just from a nostalgic point of view, sure, yeah. Um, anything that's been around for 70 years, you, you're, you're likely to miss or not like the idea that it's going away. But from from all practical purposes, I must say, uh, I don't really listen to all of those classified results. Can't remember when I last did, because I guess, um, like most people, I've got a phone in my hand, can see what's happened uh, in, in the games that I'm, I, I care about. Um, but, um, yeah, sure. I, I get it. I get why people are upset, because people generally don't like change, because that's what we're conditioned to be like. We, we are creatures of habit but what i find football what, football people generally well, yeah but what i find amazing is the the level martin of oh my god the end of the world the classifieds have gone the the sadness the column inches devoted to this front pages comment sections letters to the bbc oh god the world front is ending but do, so do you think all of this all of these complaints and all this um uh, disquiet and upset is going to lead to um, a rethink. I think it's possible. I'm not. I think it's very possible. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet my house on it. But I think it's possible. I mean, I, you know, yes, it has been front page of the Times. My my story, and I think there has been a sort of lot of feeling about it. But I do also accept that actually, not many people noticed last Saturday when they weren't on. <laughs> exactly. I, I think that speaks to it. It needs to be pointed out. Hey, Martin. That thing you're not listening to anymore, it's gone. You've got me really sad now. Well, let's hope that this podcast is still going in 70 years' time. Uh, so a few, few young, it'll be a few younger faces. So, uh, yep, write in an email to the usual address if you, if you want to carry the baton in 70 years' time, guys. Great to speak, guys. Cheers, guys. 